This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapters 22 through 24. Later, Green thought that if ever the time came when he should have cracked up, that instant of loss, white and sudden as the lightning itself, should have been the one. The others cried out loudly in their grief and shock, but he was as silent as the empty stone shelf. He could not move nor utter a word. All seemed hopeless, so what was the use of motion or talk? Nevertheless, he was human, and human beings hope, even when there is no justification for it. Nor could he remain frozen until the next stroke of lightning would reveal to the others the state of their leader. He had to act. What if his actions were meaningless? Mere movement answered for the demands of the body, and at that moment it was his body that could move. His mind was congealed. Shouting to the others to scatter and look about in the brush, but not to scatter too far, he began climbing up the slope of the hill. When he had reached its top, he left the path, and plunged into the forest to his right, on the theory that if the yachts were anywhere, they must be there. He had two ideas about where they might be. One was that the Vings had spotted them, and had sent in a party aboard a gig to push them over the side of the island. Thus, when the island had begun its nightly voyage, it had left the rollers sitting upon the plain. The other theory was also inspired by the presence of the Vings. Perhaps the savages had hidden their craft, because of just such an event as his first theory put forth. To do that, they would have had to haul the rollers up the less steep slant of the cove. At the point where he would have looped a rope around a tree and used it to pull a yacht uphill, he saw all three of the missing craft. They were nestling side by side, just over the lip of the slope, their hulls hidden by brush, piled up before them. Their tall masts, of course, would be taken for tree trunks by anybody but a very close observer. Green yelled with joy, then whirled to run back and tell the others, and slammed into a tree trunk. He picked himself up, swearing because he'd hurt his nose, and tripped over something and fell again. Thereafter, he seemed to be in a nightmare of frustration, of conspiracy between tree and night to catch and delay him. Where his trip up had been easy, his trip back was a continued barking of shins, bumping of nose, and tearing loose from clutching bushes and thorns. His confusion wasn't at all helped when the lightning ceased, because he'd been guiding himself by its frequent flashes. And Lady Luck, alarmed at all the hard knocks she was getting, struggled out of his shirt pocket and slipped into the forest. He called to her to come back, but she had had enough of him for the time being, anyway. For a brief moment he thought of the fantastic device of grabbing hold of her tail and following her through the dark. But she was gone, and the idea wouldn't have worked anyway. More than likely she'd have turned and bitten his hands until he released her. There was nothing to do but make his own way back. After ten minutes of frantic struggling, during which he suddenly realized he'd turned the wrong way and was wandering away from the edge of the island, he saw the clouds disappear. With the bright moon came vision and sanity. He turned around and in a short time was back at the cove. 
What happened to you? asked Amra. We thought maybe you'd fallen off the edge. That's about all that didn't happen, he said, irritated now that he'd been so easily lost. He told them where the yachts were, and added, We'll have to let one down by a rope before we can connect it to the davits. It'll take a lot of pushing and pulling, a lot of muscle. Everybody up on the hill, including the children. Wearily, they climbed up the slope to the top and shoved one of the rollers up the slight incline of the depression to the lip of the hill. Green picked up one of the wet ropes lying on the ground and passed it around the tree. Its trunk had a groove where many ropes had worn a path during similar operations. One end he gave to half of the party, putting Moran in charge of them. The other end he tied in a bow-knot to a huge iron eye which projected from the stern of the craft. Then, ordering the other half of the women to help him push, he got the roller over the limp and down the slope, while the rope gang slowly released the double loop around the tree in short jerks. When the craft had halted by the davits, Green untied the rope. His next step would be to back the yacht in between the davits so that he could hook up its ropes and lift it. Fortunately, there was a winch and a cable for this. Unfortunately, the winch was hand-operated and had been allowed to get rusty. It would work only with great resistance and with loud squeaking. Not that more noise mattered, for the party had made so much that only the fact that the wind was from the east could have kept the savages in ignorance of the survivors' whereabouts. It was as if his thinking of them had brought them upon the scene. Grizz Quetter, who'd been stationed in a tree as a sentinel, called down. I see a torch. It's somewhere in the woods, about a half mile away. Oh, there's another one, and another one. Green said, Do you think they're on the path that leads here? I don't know, but they're coming this way, winding here and there, wandering like Sam Drew when he was lost in the mirrored mazes of the Gil Kaku, the black one. Yes, they must be on the path. Green began feverishly tying the davit ropes to the axles of the craft. He sweated with anxiety and cursed when his fumbling fingers got in the way of his haste. But the tying of the four bow-knots actually took less than a minute, in spite of the way time seemed to race past him. That done, he had to order off the yacht some of the women who had climbed aboard. Only the women who had to take care of very small infants and the older children were to be on that boat. Just who do you think is going to work the winch? He barked at the two eager. Now jump to it! One of the women on the roller wailed, Are you going to stay on that island and leave us all alone on this roller in the midst of the exertimer? No, he answered as calmly as possible. We're going to lower you to the ground. Then we're going back up the hill and shove the other rollers over the edge so that they can't be used by the savages to come after us. We'll jump off and walk back to you. Seeing that the women were still not convinced, and softened by their pitiable looks, he called to Grizz Quetter. Come down and get on the boat. And when the boy had run down the slope and halted by his side, breathing hard and looking up at him for his orders, Green said, I'm delegating to you to guard these women and babies until we arrive, okay? Okay, said Grizz Quetter, grinning, his chest swelling because of the importance of the duty. I'm the captain until you climb aboard, is that it? You're a captain and a good one, too, said Green, slapping him lightly on the shoulder. Then he ordered the winches turned until the roller was hoisted into the air a few inches. 
As soon as the rusty machines had groaningly fulfilled their functions, he had the craft lowered over the edge and down to the plane. The transition was smoothly made. The yacht's wheels began turning. The nose lifted only slightly, because of the superior pull on the ropes tied to the bow. The stern ropes were paid out a little to equalize the strain. Then, obeying Green's gesture, the women aboard it pulled at the bow-knots, which untied simultaneously. Not until then did he breathe a little easier, for if one or more had refused to slip loose as swiftly as another, the craft might have been pulled up on one side or dragged around by either end and thus capsized. For a few seconds he watched the rollers slip away, coasting on its momentum but headed at right angles to the direction of the island. Then it had stopped, and it began to grow smaller as the island left it behind. From it came the thin wailing of his daughter, Paxi. It broke the spell that momentarily held him. He began running up the slope, shouting, "'Follow me!' Reaching the crest of the hill ahead of the others, he took time for a glance through the woods. Sure enough, torches bobbed up and down and flickered in and out as they passed between tree trunks, and there were drums beating somewhere on the island. Lady Luck shot out of the woods, leaped upon Green's knee, scaled his shirt front, and came to rest on his shoulder. "'Ah, you wandering wench, you,' he said. "'I knew you couldn't stay away from my irresistible charm, now could you?' Lady Luck didn't reply, but gazed anxiously at the forest. "'Never fear, my pretty little one,' he said. "'They'll not touch a hair of my fine blonde head, nor a silky black one of yours.' By then the others, puffing and panting, had gained the top of the hill. He set them to pushing on the stern of a yacht, and in a minute they had sent it headlong down the hill. When it rushed over the edge and disappeared with a crash on the plain below, they had all they could do to restrain their cheers. Small revenge for the suffering they'd had to undergo, but it was something. "'Now for the other,' said Green. Then everybody run as if the demons of Gilkaku were on your tails. Grunting, they pushed the last roller up the little incline, then gathered their strength for the final heave that would launch it, too, upon its last voyage. And at that moment, some savages who'd been running ahead of the torchbearers burst out of the woods. Green took one look and realized that they would get between the edge of the island and his party. There were about ten of them. They not only outnumbered his own force, but were strong men against women. And they had spears, where his people were armed mainly with cutlasses. Green didn't waste any time in meditation. "'Everybody aboard except Miranda and me,' he said loudly. "'Don't argue. Get in. We're riding through them. Lie flat on the deck.' Screaming, the women scrambled over the low rail and onto the deck. As soon as the last one was on, the Earthman and Moran put their shoulders to the stern and pushed. For a second, it looked as though their combined strength would not be enough, as if the party should have shoved the craft a little farther over the lip of the hill before stopping. "'There's not time to get them out again to help us,' panted Green. "'Dig in, Moran. Get that fat into gear. Shove, damn you, shove!' It seemed to him that he was breaking his own collarbone under the pressure, and that he'd never felt such a hard and cutting wood in all his life. And it seemed that the roller was stubbornly refusing to move until the cannibals arrived in time to save it, like the marines. His legs quivered, and his intestines, he was sure, were writhing about like snakes, 
striking here and there against the wall of his belly, seeking a weak place where they might erupt through into the open air and leave this man who subjected them to such toil. There was a shout from the warriors assembled below, and a thud of their feet as they charged up. "'Now or never!' shouted Green. His face felt like one big blood vessel, and he was sure that he was going to blow his top, literally. But the roller moved forward, crept slowly, groaned, or was that he, and began moving swiftly, too swiftly down the slope, too swiftly because he had to run after it, grab the taffrail and haul himself over. And while he was doing that, he had to extend a hand to Moran, who wasn't as fast on his feet. Fortunately, Amra had the presence of mind enough to grab Moran by the shoulder of his shirt and help pull. Over the rail he came, crying out in pain as his big stomach burned against the hard mahogany, but not forgetting the bag of jewels clutched in his hand. Lady Luck had already deserted her post on Green's shoulder when he began pushing. Now she meowed softly and pressed against him, scared at the shaking of the deck and the rumbling of the wheels as the craft sped downhill. He pulled her to him in the protection of the crook of his arm, and reared up on his elbow to see what he could see. What he saw was a spear flying straight at him. It shot by so close, he fancied he could feel the sharp edge of its blade graze him, and there was nothing of his imagination about the woman's scream that rose immediately afterward. It sounded so much like Amra that he was sure she'd been hit. However, he had no time to turn and find out. An islander had appeared by the side of the yacht, and as the deck was on a level with his chest, the fellow could see them all easily enough. His arm flew back, then leaped forward, and the spear he held darted straight at Green. No, not at him, but at Lady Luck. Another warrior, a little farther down the slope, screaming something, also thrust at the cat. Evidently, felines were no longer taboo on this island. The former worshippers considered that their totem had deserted them, and therefore deserved death. Lady Luck, however, had the traditional line lives. None of the razor-sharp blades came very close to her. And in the next few seconds, the savages were left howling upon the slope, or lying unconscious on the spot where the roller had struck them. The vessel sped down the steep incline, bumped hard as it roared out upon the stone shelf, and flew into the air. Green flattened himself out against the deck hoping thus to dampen the effect of the three-foot drop onto the plane. Somehow he became separated from the deck, was floating in the air, and saw the planks rushing up at him. There was a brief interlude of darkness before Green awoke, and realized that the meeting of the deck and his face had done the latter no good at all, and might have resulted in considerable damage. He was sure of it when he spit out his two front teeth. However, his pain was overwhelmed by the rush of joy at having escaped, for the island was retreating across the flat, moonlit exertimer while its inhabitants screamed and jumped with fury and frustration on the rim, unable to bring themselves to leap after the refugees. Home was where the island was, and they weren't going to get left behind for the sake of revenge. "'I hope the Vings exterminate you tomorrow,' muttered Green." Wearily and painfully, he rose to his feet and surveyed what was left of the clan Ephanikin. Amra was unhurt. If it was she who'd screamed when the spear had passed over Green, she'd done it from fright. The spear itself was sticking out from the base of the mast, its head half buried in the wood. 
He climbed over the side and inspected the damage done by the three-foot drop. One of the wheels had fallen off, and an axle was bent. Shaking his head, he spoke to the others. This roller is done for. Let's start walking. We've a boat to catch. Two weeks later, the yacht was scudding along under a twenty-mile-an-hour wind. It was high noon, and everybody except the helmsman, Amra, and Moran was eating. They were lunching on steaks carved from a huber which Green had shot from the deck and which had been cooked on the fireplace placed under a hood immediately aft of the small foredeck. There was no lack of food, despite the fact that the yacht had not been stocked. Fortunately, the savages who'd owned it had not bothered to remove the several pistols and the keg of powder and sack of balls from its locker. With this, Green killed enough deer and hubers to keep everybody well fed. Amra supplemented their protein diet with grass, which her culinary art turned into a halfway decent salad. At times, when they neared a grove of trees, Green would stop the yacht. They would go foraging for berries and for a large plant which could be beaten until soft, mixed with water, kneaded, and baked into a kind of bread. Once a grass cat dashed out from behind a tree, making straight for Inzax. Green and Moran, both firing at the same time, crumpled it within ten yards of the little blonde. The grass cats, big cheetah-like creatures with long, slim legs built for running, were only a peril when the party left the yacht, though fully capable of leaping aboard when the roller was in movement, they never did. Sometimes they might pace it for a mile or so, then they would contemptuously walk away. Green wished he could say the same for the dire dogs. These were almost as large as the grass cats, and ran in packs from six to twelve. Sinister-looking with their gray and black-spotted coats, pointed wolfish ears, and massive jaws, they would run up to the very wheels, howling and snapping with their monstrous yellow fangs. Then one would be inspired with the idea of leaping aboard and finding out how the occupants tasted. Up he would come, easily sailing over the railing. Usually the occupants would discourage him with a well-placed thrust from a spear or an amputating swing of a cutlass. Sometimes they missed, and he would land on the deck, which enabled the sailors to try again with better success. Back over the rail his body would go, back to his fellows, many of whom would stop the chase to devour their dead comrade. Those who persisted in the hunt would then try their luck, bounding upon the yacht, snarling hideously, trying to scare their quarry into a complete paralysis, and sometimes succeeding. No lives were lost to the dire dogs, but almost everybody bore scars. Only Lady Luck managed to stay unscathed. Every time she heard their distant howling, she scaled the mast and would not come down until the danger was over. Today they'd not been bothered. Everybody relaxed, chattering and munching happily the unexciting but nutritious meat of the Huber. Moran stood upon the foredeck, sighting at the sun through his sextant. This also had been found in the locker, along with some charts of the exertimer. Though the charts had had their locations marked in an alphabet unknown to anybody aboard, Moran had been able to compare them in his mind to the charts he'd left on the Bird of Fortune. He had crossed out the foreign names and put in names in the Kilchrisen alphabet. He'd done this only at the insistence of Green, who didn't trust Moran to translate for him, and wanted to be able to read the maps himself. Not only that, he'd forced the fat merchant to teach both him and Amra how to use the clumsy and complicated 
but fairly accurate sextant. A few days later, after Green and his wife had begun to study the navigation instrument, there occurred the accident that forced Green to take further measures to safeguard himself. He and Moran had been standing at the stern, ready with their pistols, while Amra steered the yacht toward a group of hoobers. They were going through their usual maneuver of running down a herd until the exhausted animals could be overtaken. Just as they neared an orange-colored stallion galloping furiously, Green raised his pistol. At the same time, he was vaguely aware that Moran had also sighted, but had stepped back, behind and to one side of him. Sensitive about wasting any of the valuable ammunition, Green had turned his head to warn Moran not to shoot unless he, Green, missed. It was then that he saw the muzzle swerving toward the back of his head. He ducked, fully expecting to get his brains blown out before he could shout a warning. But Moran, seeing his reaction, lowered the muzzle and puzzledly asked Green what he was doing. Green didn't answer. Instead, he took the gun away from Moran's limp grip and silently put it away in the locker. Neither he nor the merchant ever referred to the incident, nor did Moran ask why he was not permitted to take part in any shooting thereafter. That convinced Green that the fellow had fully intended to shoot him, and then claimed to the others that it had been an accident. To forestall any more attempts at accidents, Green told Amra that if he were to disappear some dark night, she was to see that a certain person was shot and thrown overboard. He did not name the certain person, but he mentioned his sex, and as Moran was the only other man on the yacht, there was no doubt about to whom he referred. Thereafter, Moran was most cooperative, always smiling and joking. However, Green caught him now and then with frowning brows and a thoughtful expression. He was either fingering a stiletto or the bag of jewels he carried inside his shirt. Green could imagine that he was planning something for the day they reached Astoria. Now, on this day, two weeks after they'd left the island, Moran was shooting the sun, and Green was waiting until he was through, so he could check on him. If his calculations were correct, the yacht should be directly east of Astoria, two hundred miles. If they maintained their average rate of twenty-five miles an hour, they'd reach the windbreak in a little over eight hours. The fat merchant quit looking through the eyepiece of his instrument and walked to the cockpit where his charts and papers were. Green took the sextant from him and made his own observations, then checked with Moran in the narrow and crowded cockpit. "'We agree,' said Green, indicating with the pencil tip a round scarlet spot on the chart. "'We should be sighting this island within four hours.' "'Yes,' replied Moran. "'That is an old landmark.' It has been there a hundred miles due east of Astoria since before my grandfather's time. It was once a roaming island, but it long ago quit moving and has stayed on that one spot. That is nothing unusual. Every captain knows of these fixed islands scattered all over the Exertimer, and every now and then we have to add a new red mark to our charts because one of the roamers has settled down. He paused, then added a statement that set Green's heart to beating fast. The unusual thing about this island is that it did not stop of its own accord. It was halted by the magic of the Astorians, and it has been kept in that one place ever since by their magic. "'What do you mean?' asked Green, eagerly. Moran's round, pale blue eyes stared at him blankly. "'What do you mean, what do I mean? I mean just what I said, nothing more.' 
I mean, what magic did they contrive to halt this roamer? Why, they put up certain peculiar towers in its path, and when the island began going backwards to get out of the trap and go around it, they moved other towers to block its retreat. These towers moved fast on many well-greased wheels. Once the circle was complete, the island couldn't move, nor has it been able to move since. These towers intrigue me. How did the historians know how to halt these islands? And if they've succeeded with one, why not with the others? I do not know. Perhaps because the towers are huge and costly and don't move too fast. Perhaps it is not worthwhile to the historians to capture many. As for their knowledge, I think they got it from their ancestors. It was their great-great-great and then some grandfathers who originally built Astoria in the middle of the plain and protected it from being crushed by these islands by placing these many towers all around their city. But it cost them much wood and time, and perhaps they lost interest after that. Moran indicated a castle inked in beside the red spot. That castle means that a military or naval fortification has been built there on the island. It was the furthest eastern garrison of the Astorians. When we come within sighting distance of it, we are supposed to report. Of course, if we wish to avoid it, we may sail to the north or south and swing around it. But then we will have to report to the windbreak master of the city itself. They are rather hostile to captains who have failed to have their papers checked at the fort of Shimduk. Even if the craft is such a small and weak one as this, historians are a suspicious people. Yes, thought Green, and I'll bet that you intend to inflate their distrust with certain information about me. He rose from the cockpit, and at the same time he heard Amra hail him from her station at the helm. Island on the horizon, she said, and many glittering white objects placed before it. Green refrained from comment, but he had a hard time concealing his excitement, which grew with every turn of the wheels. He paced back and forth, stopping now and then to shade his eyes and look long at the white towers. Finally, as they got so near that he could no longer be mistaken about their size or the details of their peculiar structure, he could contain himself no longer. He whooped with joy and kissed Amra on the cheek, and danced around and around the foredeck while the women stared with embarrassment and concern and the children giggled, all wondering if he'd gone mad. Spaceships! Spaceships! he howled in English. Dozens of them! It must be an expedition! I'm saved! Saved! Spaceships! Spaceships! They were a magnificent sight, those many cones pointing their skyscraping noses upward and their spreading landing struts sinking into the soft earth. Their white eternum metal gleamed in the sun, dazzling the spectator who happened to catch their radiance full in the eyes. They were glorious, embodying all the vast wisdom and skill of the greatest civilization of the galaxy. No wonder, thought Green, that I dance and howl, while these people look at me if I'm mad, and Amra, tears in her eyes, shakes her head and says something to herself. What can they know of the meaning of those splendors? What, indeed? Hey! shouted Green. Hey! Here I am! An Earthman! Maybe I look like one of these barbarians, with my long hair and bushy beard and dirty skin, but I'm not! 
I'm Alan Green, an Earthman. Of course, they couldn't have heard him at that distance, even if somebody had been standing beneath the spaceships to hear him. But he howled with sheer exuberance, not worrying about wasting his breath and making himself hoarse. Finally, Amra interrupted him. What is the matter, Alan? Have you been bitten by the green bird of happiness which sometimes flies over these plains? Or has the white bird of terror nipped you while you slept last night upon the open deck? Green paused and looked steadily at her. Could he tell her the truth, now he was so near salvation? It was not that he was worried about her or the others stopping him from making contact with the expedition. Nothing could stop him now, he was sure of that. It was just that he hesitated to tell her that he would be leaving her. The idea of hurting her was agony to him. He started to speak in English, caught himself, and switched to her language. Those vessels, they have brought my people from across the space between the stars. I came to this world in just a vessel, a space roller, you might say. My ship crashed, and I was forced to descend upon this, your world. Then I heard that another ship had landed near Astoria, and that King Rosmug had put the crew in prison, and was going to sacrifice them during the Festival of the Sun's Eye. I had little time to get to Astoria before that happened, so I talked Moran into taking me. That was why I left you. That. He trailed off because he did not understand the expression upon her face. It was not the great hurt he'd expected, nor the wild fury he thought might result from his explanation. If anything, she looked pitying. Why, Alan, whatever are you talking about? He pointed at the line of spaceships. They're from Terra, my home planet. I don't understand what you mean by your home planet, she replied, still pityingly. But those are not spaceships. Those are towers built by the Astorians a thousand years ago. Well, what do you mean? Stunned, he looked at them again. If those weren't starships, he'd eat the yacht's canvas. Yes, and the wheels, too. Under the swift wind, the roller swept closer and closer while he stood behind Amra, and thought that he'd break into little pieces if his tension didn't find some release. Finally, it did find an outlet. Tears welled in his eyes, and he choked. His breast seemed as if it would swell up and burst. How cleverly the ancient builders had fashioned those towers. The landing struts, the big fins, the long sweeping lines ending in the pointed nose, all must have been built with a spaceship as a model. There was no escaping such a conclusion. Coincidence couldn't explain it. Amra said, Don't cry, Ellen. Your people will think you weak. Captains don't weep. This captain does, he replied, and he turned and walked the length of the yacht to the stern, and leaned over the taffrail where no one could see him as he shook with sobs. Presently he felt a hand upon his. Alan, she said gently, tell me the truth. If those had been ships on which you could leave this world and travel into the skies, would you have taken me along? Were you still thinking that I was not, not good enough for you? Let's not talk about it now, he said. I can't. Besides, there are too many people listening. Later, when everybody's asleep. 
All right, Ellen. She released his hand and left him alone, knowing that that was what he wanted. Mentally, he thanked her for it, because he knew what it was costing her to exercise restraint. At any other time, in a like situation, she would have thrown something at him. After he had calmed down somewhat, he returned to the helm and took over from Miran. From then on, he was too busy to think much about his disappointment. He had to report to the port officer and tell his story, which took hours, for the officer called in the others to hear his amazing tale. And they questioned Moran and Amra. Green anxiously listened to the merchant's account, fearful that the fellow would disclose his suspicions that Green was not what he claimed to be. If Moran had any such intentions, however, he was saving them for their arrival in Astoria itself. The officers all agreed that they had heard many wonderful stories from sailors, but never anything to match this. They insisted upon giving a banquet for Moran and Green. The result was that Green got a much-needed and desired bath, haircut and shave. But he also had to endure a long feast in which he had to stuff himself to keep from offending his hosts, and was also forced to enter a drinking contest with some of the younger blades of the post. His vigilante could handle enormous amounts of food and alcohol, so that Green appeared to the soldiers to be something of a superman. At midnight, the last officer had dropped his head upon the table, dead drunk, and Green was able to get up and go to his yacht. Unfortunately, he had to carry the fat merchant out on his shoulders. Outside the banquet room, he found a few rickshaw boys standing around a fire, huddled together, waiting for a customer so drunk he wouldn't fear thieves or ghosts. He gave one of them a coin and told him to deliver Moran to the yacht. "'What about yourself, honored sir? Don't you wish to ride home, too?' "'Later,' said Green, looking up past the fort and at the hills behind it. "'I intend to take a walk to clear my head.' Before the rickshaw men could question him further, he plunged into the darkness and began striding swiftly toward the highest peak on the island. Two hours later he suddenly appeared in the moonlight-drenched windbreak, walked past the many vessels tied down for the night, and crawled aboard his own yacht. A glance around the deck convinced him that everybody was sleeping. He stepped softly past the prostrate forms and laid down by Amra. Face up, his hands behind his head, he stared at the moon a thoughtful expression upon his face. Amra whispered, Alan, I thought you were going to talk to me tonight. He stiffened but did not turn his head to look at her. I was, but the officers kept us up late. Didn't Moran get here? Yes, about five minutes before you did. He rose on one elbow and looked searchingly at her. What? Is there anything strange about that? Only that he was so drunk he'd passed out and was snoring like a pig. The fat son of an ezit. He must have been faking. And he must have... Must have what? Green shrugged. I don't know. He couldn't tell her that Moran must have followed him up into the hills, and that if he had, the fellow must have seen some very disturbing things. He stood up and gazed intently at the dark form stretched out here and there. Moran was sleeping upon a blanket behind the helm, or was pretending to do so. Should he kill him? If Moran turned him in to the authorities in Astoria, 
he sat down again and fingered his dagger. Amra must have guessed his thoughts, for she said, Why do you want to kill him? You know why. Because he could have me burned. She sucked her breath in with a hiss. Alan, it can't be true. You can't be a demon. To him, the accusation was so ridiculous that he didn't bother to answer. He should have known better, because he was well aware of how seriously these people took such things. However, he was thinking so furiously about what he could do to forestall Miran that he completely forgot about her. Not until he heard her muffled sobs did he come out of his reverie. Surprised, he said, Don't worry, they're not going to burn me. No, they're not, she said, choking on every other word. I don't care if you're a demon. I love you, and I'd go to hell for you or with you. It took him a few seconds to understand that she did believe he was a demon and that it made no difference to her. Or rather, she was determined to ignore the difference. What a sacrifice of her natural feelings she must have made for him. She, like everybody upon this world, had been trained from childhood to develop a fierce disgust and horror of devils and to be always upon her guard for them when they appeared in human form. What an abyss she had to cross in order to conquer her deep revulsion. In a way, her feat was greater than crossing the chasm between the stars. Amra, he said, deeply touched, and he bent down to kiss her. To his surprise, she turned her face away. You know my lips don't belch fire like the devils in the legends, he said, half jestingly, half pityingly. Nor will I suck your soul into my mouth. You have already done that, she said, still not facing him. Oh, Amra. Yes, you have. Else why should I follow you when you deserted me to run away on the bird? And why should I still want to follow you, to be with you, even if those towers had turned out to be your what you call them, and you had sailed away in the skies on them? Why would any decent human woman want to do that? Tell me. She too rose on an elbow her face now turned to him. He scarcely recognized her. Her features were so twisted and her skin was so livid. A hundred times during this voyage I've wished you would die. Why? Because then I wouldn't have to think about the time to come when you would leave this world forever, leave me forever. But then you were in danger. Then I almost died too. And I knew I didn't really wish your death it was just wounded pride on my part. And I couldn't face the moment of your departure, or the fact that you must come from a superior race, a people more like gods than demons. Oh, I didn't know what to think, whether you were a devil or a god, or just a man who was somehow more of a man than any I knew. I could ignore such things as your wounds healing up faster than they should and scar tissues disappearing but I couldn't ignore your knowledge that Aga would be killed if she touched that wall in the room on the cannibal's island, nor the fact that your teeth grew back in after they were knocked out during the escape from the island, nor your too obvious interest in those two demons held prisoner in Astoria, or... Not so loud, Amra, he interrupted. You'll wake everybody up. All right, all right. Better to keep quiet and pretend to be stupid. But I can't. I'm not built that way. So, what are you going to do, Alan? Do? Do? He repeated miserably. Why, 
Somehow or other I'm going to free those two poor devils and escape in their spaceship. Devils? Then they are demons? Oh, no, that was just a manner of speaking. I said poor devils because of what they must have gone through in that barbarous prison. They might as well have been in the hands of the cannibals as at the mercy of the priests of this wretched planet. Yes, that's what you really think of us, isn't it? That we're all murderous, dirty, and stinking savages. Oh, not all of you, he replied. You're not, Amra. By any standard, you're a wonderful woman. Then why can't? She bit her lip and turned away from him. She would not humble herself by asking him to take her with him. It was up to him to make the offer. Green did not know what to say, though he knew that it was necessary to say something at once. He just could not make up his mind as to how she would fit into earth civilization. How could he teach her that if somebody whom you didn't like differed with you, you just didn't try to tear them apart, or that if the person you hated was too powerful for you to settle matters with personally, you didn't resort to professional assassins? How could he teach her to love the same things he did, the music and literature of his own culture? Her roots were in an entirely different culture. She couldn't possibly understand what he understood, thrill to that which thrilled him, catch the subtleties that he caught, see what lay behind the nuances of his civilization. She'd be a stranger in a world not made for her. Of course, he thought, there were plenty of women upon Earth and her star colonies who didn't share his culture, even if they'd been brought up in it. But their case was simply a matter of taste. And they could still share a certain amount with him, just because they'd breathe the same atmosphere and talk the same words as he. Not that he would have cared to live with them, because he wouldn't. But Amra, desirable in so many ways, just would not understand what was taking place around her, or in the minds of those she would have to live with. He looked down at Amra. Her back was turned, and she seemed to be breathing the easy breath of deep sleep. Though he doubted very much that she could be sleeping, he decided to accept things as they looked. He wouldn't answer her now, though he knew that when morning came her eyes would be asking the same question, even if she didn't voice it. At least, he thought, she'd be diverted from her curiosity about what he'd been doing that night. That was something. He didn't want anybody to know about that, not until the time for action came. Provided, that is, that he could do anything even then. He discovered certain things tonight that could mean his salvation if he could utilize them. That was the rub, as some poet or other had once said. Wondering just who had originated that saying, he fell asleep. Wool-gathering had always been a favorite occupation of his when people left him alone to do it. That was the rub. They didn't. End of chapters 22 through 24